Father God, we come before you, and Lord, um, it's nice to be able to lay everything aside, and I know that this week has been rough. Many of the students are back in school, and everybody you know, is back from vacation, and now it's time to, to get back to the routine, and that could be sometimes a burden, but it's so nice to forget about all of that, papers, assignments, and all of those things, and just come to your house of prayer. Here we are this morning, and I ask, Father God, that it be you speaking and not I, as always. Send your Holy Spirit to anoint my lips and, and to prepare our hearts and our minds to be receptive to your message. We dare not open the scriptures without calling upon your spirit. So pour out your spirit right here, right now. I ask these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let everyone here say, Amen. As you know, for the last several weeks, we've been going over uh, different parables and things like that. And and today is no different. We're going to go over a parable uh, that has to deal with a mustard seed. And we're we're going to be addressing that. But before we do, I want you to understand something about the scriptures. If you ever done uh, Bible studies, um, and especially recently, you may you may remember some of the things that I'm going to share with you now. Some of you did Bible studies a long time ago. You probably don't remember this much, but let me tell you something very unique about one of the very first Bible studies that we do. We talked about how the Scriptures really are the inspired Word of God. And one of the neat things is that in the Old Testament, we have over 125 prophecies pointing towards Christ Jesus. Some years ago, there there was a doctor at a university, a professor, who decided to do a study to see what it would look like for only eight out of these prophecies to be fulfilled in the life of one person during their lifetime. And what are the odds that this is all pure coincidence? And so he took just eight prophecies, and he says, what are the chances that eight would appear in the lifetime of one individual? And so the the results came back that the odds of this happening by chance is one in an octillion. Do you know what an octillion is? Some of you know millions and billions and trillions, but you know what an octillion is? There are 27 zeros in the other side. So there's a one, and then 27 zeros, one in an octillion, the chances that eight of them will happen in someone's lifetime. Now imagine all 125 plus prophecies to happen in the lifetime of an individual. It's just impossible. It couldn't just happen by chance. It only happened because God said it was going to happen. It was predicted. It was prophesied. And it was so. And so I share that with you today because I want, to, I want you to have an understanding of what the Israelites were going through when they were um, looking forward towards the Messiah. I know in the Garden of Eden, you may be familiar with the story, the, the, the serpent came and, and he tempted Eve, he ate of the fruit and all of these different things. And the minute that Adam and Eve sinned, the minute that they sinned, the plan of salvation went into place. Right in Genesis 3, suddenly there's the very first prophecy about the Messiah coming and, and, and crushing the head, even though the heel was going to be bruised. You remember that? Are you familiar with that text? It's like 317. You could check that out later. But that was the beginning of a whole bunch of prophecies pointing towards Jesus. The problem is that some of these prophecies were very poetic, 
it, it, it acquired language of the time, and people weren't sure what to expect when they were expecting the Messiah. And when I say people, I mean people in general. You know, that was sort of an understanding. The Israelites, they, they kind of they were looking forward, but they didn't know. I have two brief ones to share with you. They should be on the screen. Isaiah 9, 6. You may be familiar with this. We quote this, uh, especially during Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6. It says the following, for unto us a child is born. Here you have the prediction of the child. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. We, we Looking back now to the different uh, stories of the Bible, remember when, when the, the king was after Jesus, and then Jesus left, went to Egypt, then he came back, and then the king's son now was after Jesus, so he had to take a detour and go somewhere else. So, so you understand this prophecy now after the fact, right? And then you keep reading. It says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Prince of Peace. Have you heard this Bible text before? Maybe you've heard a quote. They didn't know it was found right there. But we say that all of the time. This is a lot in this prophecy. He's going to be born. A son is going to be given. The government is going to be on his shoulders. But this is what they're going to call him. Next parable. Uh, I'm sorry. Next prophecy. Isaiah 33, verse 20. Isaiah 33, 20, and it says the following. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Verse 21. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships will pass by. Verse 22. For the Lord is our what? And the Lord is our what? And the Lord is our what? And he will what? Save us. And so here you have scriptures like this that give you information about the Messiah. You know, you have like a, a prophecy in Psalms 22 where it talks about the exact coinage that, 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 um, that he was going to be betrayed for and how his clothes were going to be cast lots. And you have all of these prophecies about him, but people didn't know what to expect. And so what they thought, what they waited, the Messiah that they wanted was a mighty, powerful king that was going to come. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you noticed that text there where it talked about no tent or core is going to be broken. I mean, this is representing a stability power. I mean, this is going to be a fortress, and he's going to give us a peace, and he's going to be a mighty God. And so people were waiting for a king that was going to be their king, the king of the Jews, that it was going to be their deliverer, their Messiah, who was going to come and be more powerful than any of the other kings, with an army, with a kingdom, with his glory, and he was just going to tear everything up and deliver everybody and free everybody and save everybody. But instead, they got a broke, wood-making guy who, even in the Bible says he wasn't that good-looking, if you look at Isaiah 52 and 53 towards the end, it says there was nothing about his appearance that was even attractive to anybody. You know, you know, you see people and you say, well, she's kind of cute with her nose, you know, and some other, well, at least they got nice eyes. Well, no, no, there's not one thing. According to Isaiah, the way that it describes him, I would dare even say that he was ugly. 
And I know some people, oh, how can you say Jesus was ugly? Well, read Isaiah at the end of chapter 52 and read the beginning of chapter 53, and you will see there clearly where it compares him to like a tender shoot. It just, just sprouts out. Nothing appealing about him. And so how was it that he drew so many people to him? He didn't even have the looks going for himself because he was a different kind of king. He was a king, not the one they expected or the one that they wanted, but it was exactly the king that we all needed. Let's go to this parable uh, that we're talking today, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning on verse 30, and I think we'll have it up on the screen too, but you can look it up and have that there with you. Because I want you to understand something. Here the people are being oppressed. Here the people are being beaten. Here the people are being, you know, just completely uh, treated in such a way that they wanted somebody to come and, and fight them. I want you to picture the following. I want you to picture the following. Imagine that you have fallen into a cage of lions. And they're there, ready to devour and then I say, here, I'll send help, and I send you a little baby that, that, that can't even crawl, and, and you just throw him in there. And you say, really? This is what you're giving me to help me? I'm in the lion's den right now. I'm about to be devoured, and you send me a little baby that can't even wipe his own behind. How is he going to help me? And this is sort of how the people saw Jesus. They saw him like, who are you? You have no power, no riches. You weren't born out of nobility. You have no influences. And so people were wondering, what is going on? Jesus read the minds of the people around. And look what he says in Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? You guys are not understanding what is happening. Let me explain it to you. It is like, verse 31, a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on the earth. I mean, you're talking about a tiny little thing. Verse 32, but when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And so here's a very simple prophecy in just two or three verses describing the mustard seed, how tiny it is, but once it grows greater than any other, and even the birds take shade under its branches. Now you're saying, yeah, Joe, we have read this, and every time I read the Gospels, I kind of just fly through this and I read it. But have you ever thought about what this really means? Because you see, here you have the earthly kingdoms. You have people that came to try to dominate by war, by fighting, by mere force, and yet Jesus was known as the Prince of Peace. You know, in the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures, throughout different prophecies, He describes different enemies as beasts, but yet Jesus is described as something that is not like a beast, but yet he is the Lamb of God. For uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. Here it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said what? Behold the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I want you to understand this. For many, many years... Many, many years, there were prophecies of the Messiah from Adam and Eve 
throughout Israel, through the 400 plus years of slavery, throughout the deliverance and, and so forth, over and over, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. Some preachers said once that the scriptures is all about the cross. People in the beginning were looking forward towards the cross, and we're looking back at the cross to what he did for us in that cross. And that's a wonderful thing. But imagine you, I don't know how old you are and what your backgrounds are and whether or not you've always been a Christian, but how long have you been hearing that Jesus is coming? And imagine all of that, that you're waiting at Jesus, you're under captivity, you've been beaten by everybody, always captured by someone, treated in such a way, now currently you find yourself under the oppressions of the Romans, and you get Jesus. Not the one you expected, definitely not the one you wanted, and they didn't know what to do. Here he comes like a lamb, saying silly things like, turn the other cheek. Instead of coming out and destroying and conquering and really putting us in power. Like, yeah, we got it now. That's what they got. But it was not how it was supposed to be. Christ's Object Lesson, page 7-7. In his plan of government, there is no employment of brute force to compel the conscience. The Jews look for the kingdom of God to be established in the same way as the kingdoms of the world. To promote righteousness, they restore to external measures. They devise methods and plans, but Christ implants a principle. By implanting truth and righteousness, he counterworks error and sin. 78 continues of Christ's object lessons. So the work of grace in the heart is small in its beginning. A word spoken, a ray of light is shed on the soul, and influence is exerted. That is the beginning of the new life, and who can measure its results? Very plain and simple. This little tiny parable of the seed symbolizes how the work is supposed to be completed right here, right now. First of all, you can't force people at all to give their lives to God. You cannot do it by force, by power, by manipulation of sorts. You cannot, as when I grew up, try to scare the heck out of people literally and say, oh, repent or you're going to burn. You know what happens? People don't care. i rather, you know, ruling hell than serving heaven. And they say all these things and they rather just do whatever because it's not a fear thing. Fear is not going to win the world over but the love of God who loved us so much to send his son Jesus to die for you and me. And so this is all about small, tiny things, small, little sacrifices, plain and simple. You know, many people look to the pastor for for us to lead out in a spiritual charge out there and take the world. Many people look at our conferences and our divisions and our unions thinking that they are the ones who are going to do something. But do you know that many a time when big changes took place was just simply individuals who decided to take up the baton and just lead and do something? Small and simple. This is why the parable of the mustard seed at every stage of what we see in the scriptures is lived in this manner. Over and over, this parable has come true 
And it's going to come true again at the end times. And I know you're saying, come on, Joe, it's only two verses. You spend like 30 minutes in these two verses. Yes, because I want you to understand, tiny and small, it does not matter. If you're willing to work, if you're willing to serve, if you're willing to sacrifice, no matter how tiny and small you think you are, you will be mighty before God and his people. You will be mighty. Why? Because that is how God works. I mean, you have some historical examples. And, and if you don't know the history, check it out. But, you know, you have some of the things like the first people who um, bear, you know, took the gospel to Europe. It was just only a small handful of people, and yet it took from there. What about John the Baptist? Could you imagine how lonely it was for him to come out of the wilderness? He is crying out. He is speaking, preparing the way for the Lord. He was the forerunner before Christ. He set the way for the Messiah, and he's sitting there preaching to everybody. Come on, guys, repent. Repent and be baptized. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Behold, the Lamb of God. And so he is here on his own. And look at all of the impact that he did. And he lived a short life. He was beheaded shortly after. But yet he did his best to prepare the way for the Lord. You had it with the first people in Europe. You had Paul and Silas, how hopeless things may be for those two tent makers that were out there, you know, asking for money and selling things and trying to do what they could to spread the gospel message. And yet... Paul himself is the author of about half of the books in the New Testament. And he ministered to many churches and planted many and trained many and discipled many. Two little tent makers. And that's what they did. What about even in history, like Martin Luther? I mean, he was bold. You know, he decided to take on the whole entire church of the time. A church that had kings and queens on their knees and everybody begging them and giving them money and doing all these things. And he took on them. Martin Luther, we speak of him now as one of the great individuals who who did amazing things for the advancement of where we are today. Because you see, Adventists, many people are proud of being Adventists. Many people don't realize who we really are. Many people here have no idea who Adventists are. Maybe you're just showing up to the church with a friend or something like that. But here's the thing. We are a church who has learned from other places. We learn from Luther, for example, salvation by grace rather than salvation by works. We learn from the Seventh-day Baptists all about the Seventh-day Sabbath. And we learn from the Anabaptists about baptism by immersion. We have learned many things from others. Our church is a church that has seen where others have grown, and we have learned from that. And there's going to be more light and more things that we are going to learn. Councils to Writers and Editors chapter 4 says that not all light has been revealed yet. There's more growth that needs to take place. And one of the growths that our church is deeply neglected is that we become stagnant and settled. We have become an institution rather than a movement and we think that we need to just come here receive information invite people to listen to our information make them uncomfortable jesus went he ministered to their needs he won their confidence he mingled with them he rubbed elbows with them had dinner with them hung out with them he cared for them and then he said follow me We somehow have all of that completely backwards and completely out of place. We think somehow, well, we got a pastor. We pay his salary technically maybe. I don't know. Some of you think you do. Some of you think you do not. It's not really how it works. But anyhow, we pay his salary. We got the elders. We'll let them. We voted for them. Let them be the ones to carry out the work. What about you? 
What about you? The greatest changes and the greatest transformations has not been by leaders, theologians, pastors, priests, elders. It has been done by everyone and anyone who is willing to let the seed grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is just an example. You know, now don't get me wrong, there has been rich people. There has been rich people that have served God. There has been kings who have served God. We've seen that throughout the scriptures. But the greatest work often has been done by people who are not the brightest, by people who are not the richest. I have seen some poor churches raise some funds and build some temples that I'm saying, wow. I have seen some churches do some amazing things. I remember I had a church in New Jersey that were very poor. We were trying to do scholarship for some kids from school, and they, they raised thousands of dollars. I had another church that was tithing one and a half million dollars a year, and all they were able to come up was with 500 bucks. And I'm saying, whoa, mercy. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. I, people tell me sometimes, and first of all, I don't believe him because, you know, I, I make a lot of dumb mistakes all of the time. But there's people that sometimes say, you know, Joey, you're smart. I, I, I'm not as smart as you are. Or they say something like that. It's like, really? You know, it, don't, don't let your, don't put yourself down. I, I do marriage counseling and, and usually there's one person where, you know, the, the wife or the mister who has low self-esteem, low self-confidence, they, they don't see their self-worth. Uh, and, and so throughout my years, I've seen different things like that where people are saying, oh, you're so much smarter than me or you're so much whatever. And don't put yourself down. And if you think of yourself that way, Rejoice because God will do amazing things with people especially like you. Especially if you think of yourself less because that means you are not believing, you know, yourself. I had somebody that um, said to me before, you guys may have met him a, a, a year and a half ago, two years ago, Dr. Max Hammonds. He said to me, Joey, my father used to say, and I'm telling you this, never believe anything good that people say about you. And I said, why? He says, because then you'll start to believe it. <laughs> and that is the most amazing lesson that anybody can learn. It gets to you, you're right. I am smart, yes. I, I am a good person. Oh, yes, I am a good spiritual leader. Ah, and then suddenly that's when you pow, fall flat on your face. Do you know that most ministers fall right after they got enough an evangelistic series, an inspirational week or inspirational month? Because they're on a spiritual high thinking, man, I was studying and prepping. Now I could just put the Bible to the side and take a vacation from that. And that's when you are gotten. I mean, it happened to Peter in the Bible. What happened to Peter? Peter says, you know, Jesus is like, hey, who do they say that I am? And, 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 and he says, well, they said this. No, no, who do you say that I am? Peter says, oh, you're the son of God. You're the this. Yes, my father in heaven has revealed that to you. And let me tell you something more. There's going to be a time that the son of man has to die. Oh, no, God, you can't do this. And Jesus is like, yo, 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 get behind me, Satan. So, so, so God inspired him one verse. And then get behind me, Satan, three verses later, 
What in the world? So be careful what you believe, what people say about you, because you'll get in trouble for that. And so I want you guys to think about this, especially when you look down upon yourself, especially when you don't think you're worthy. That's when you're really ready to accept Christ's love for you. Many people think they could be perfect by doing things all on their own. They think they could do just fine. And that's when you get into trouble. When you realize your dependence on God, ah, that's when God can really thrive in your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, it says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. I love this. It's not what men think. It's not what men expect. Let it be in the power of God. And so here's the thing with this parable. If you want to make a difference, I'm probably going to do this here someday. In, in Crawfordville, we're doing 10 days of prayer. Today, we spend the entire sermon time just in prayer. We just simply pray. I rarely spoke, read a few Bible verses. We just simply pray. In this time, somebody attacks, you pray. You don't know how to pay the bills, you pray. You're having a difficult time, you pray. No matter what, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but what? They're spiritual. They're not of the flesh, but they are spiritual. Prayer is one of the most powerful tools we have, and yet we don't really use it. You want to finish the work? You want to finish the gospel message? You got to do what Jesus did. Do things that are unorthodox. Do things that are not like the world. If we responded to everything the same, the, the same way the world did, then how are we any different? And just like a seed, no matter how small you think you are, you can grow mighty in the sight of God and man if you let him to work in you and through you for the, for the benefit of all. I want to share with you, we're going to go to the last three texts for today, Revelation 14.6, Revelation 14.6, because we have a powerful message. Now, I will make a disclaimer about this message. I wish I could spend a whole sermon on this today, but I don't have the time to do that. If you've never heard this message before, let me know. We could do a Bible study on it. We could talk about it. We could work on it. But I want to touch some highlights of this message. We often refer to it as the three angels message. We forget that there are other angels. We forget that there are other messengers. But I want to just share with this you briefly because I want you to understand what is going to happen and why it's needed that all of you do the work. Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. Now the gospel is the good news. What are the good news? That I was lost, but I found. I was blind, but I can see that Jesus died for you and me, that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, but we have been set free, that we no longer belong to the devil, that this world is no longer his, but Jesus has redeemed us. The gospel message to preach to those who dwell where? On the earth. And just in case you're not sure who lives on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Verse saying, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Now fear is not afraid, like, you know, I'm shaking in my feet and whatever else. No, no, no. Fear is more of a respect for God, an honor of God. You recognize that he is your Lord, therefore you fear him and you give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. 
Some other day we could discuss his judgment and worship him who made the heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of what? Water. Now, you're familiar with this text. You say, yeah, Joe, we have heard this. This is very important because at the end of the day in Revelation, the question is, whom do you worship? And our problem is that we often stop looking at God and we begin to look at self. We really just think that we are it. We are the bond. Whenever you put yourself before God, whenever you put yourself before God, it is like you have become your own God. Remember that commandment says, I shall not have any other gods before me? Even yourself. When you're saying, well, Lord, you know, if I had to go to court, I will show up on time. If I had a job interview, I would show up on time. But because it's church, the day you set aside to spend time and worship with you, I'll hit the snooze button. Maybe I'll just sleep in today. Maybe I'll skip it today. How come you're upset that I'm late? I'm, I had to sleep in. I'm tired. I've worked a long time this whole week. It is amazing how your job or court day can take more importance than the only day. All he said was, six days, do whatever you feel like doing within my norms, of course. All I'm asking is that you give me one day to worship with me. And even that day, we want to rob him from it. Come on now, you can't say amen. Say ouch. You know, I'm sharing that with you because we have a way where suddenly we put other things before God, even ourselves. So worship him who created. Are you the creator? Then stop worshiping you. Forget all about you and worry about him. Verse 8, and another angel follow. Here's the second angel's message. Follow saying, Babylon is falling. It's falling the great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of wrath of her fornication. Now let me tell you this in a nutshell. Again, someday there's a lot more to this prophecy. But you used to have in the Bible a uh, real Jerusalem, you know, and a real Babylon. And you still have Jerusalem here, and there's technically a, a biblical Babylon overseas. But when Revelation is speaking, it's more of a spiritual Jerusalem and a spiritual Babylon. This Babylon that has fallen, that has made the nations drink out of the wrath of her fornication. You know what fornication is? Do you know what adultery is? Do you know the verbiage that it is there? I won't explain because there are children involved, but I do want you to understand this. If I am married to God, if I have given my life to God, and then I'm cheating a hand with another God or something else... That's fornication, that's adultery, that's going out of the way, completely away from the God that we have there. The question in Revelation, if you don't understand it, is whom do you what? Worship. Whom do you worship? Verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receive his mark on his forehead or his hand, some other day we could focus on who the beast is and what the image is and the mark is. Verse 10, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who, who worships the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Now I'm describing the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. And on that cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and on his hand a sharp sickle. This Bible text here that we just read is the famous three angels message. 
There's a lot of theology here, but in a nutshell, worship God. There's a time of judgment. Christ is coming soon, and there's only two ends. The beast, image, fornicators, Babylon, and the patience of the saints, those who died in the Lord and those who are alive, and what awaits either side of them. Now, I'm not saying this to scare you, but I am saying this because I want you to understand the urgency. I don't know if you have ever been in a form of emergency or not. On Wednesday night, I had a prayer meeting, a board meeting in Crawfordville. So I'm heading down there to, to prayer meeting. There was an accident, and the ambulance came. Everybody moves to the side to clear the way, to let them through, to get in there. They had to get in, take the person out of the car. It was a very nasty accident. I said a prayer on the way there. I was really late to prayer meeting. But uh, anyhow, I, on the way there, because it's like one road going to Crawfordville. But, you know, as I'm there and as I'm thinking, this is not a time to worry about how pretty the car is or how bad the car is. Or what's happening. It's a time to get in there, rescue, move in, and don't get distracted by different things. And yet here's what we have. Christ is coming soon. We know that for sure. We look at the news and it scares us. It scares me every day when I see everything that is happening. And yet it seems like we are distracted, not realizing the urgency on how much people need a Savior. And I remember Isaiah 6-8 when it says, who will go before us. And I will also tell you something else. Let's go to the next Bible text. This is in Acts chapter 15, verse 14. If you notice, Simon Peter had an issue with non-Jews. I don't know if you know this or not from the Bible, but just in case I'll mention it. If you were Jewish, you were Jewish. If you were anything else, you were a Gentile. So you were either a Jew or a Gentile. And what happens is that Gentile, in Peter's mind, they were filthy, unclean people that you couldn't rub shoulders with. God forbid a Jewish person like me enters their house, hangs out with them, does anything with somebody who is not a Jew. And then Peter had a vision. He had an experience at Cornelius' house. And then here's what he's saying. Simon has declared how God, at, at, at the first, visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for what? For his name. You may have had some unlovable neighbors and some unlovable co-workers. And you may see a group of people in a group of area in a part of town that you're saying, Whoo. But guess what? God has people everywhere. And God is calling people to come out of all of those places. Who will go before us? My prayers that you say, Lord, here I am. Send me. The gospel message will reach the world. The difference is, will you help the progress or not? Last text for today, Revelation 18.1. Revelation 18.1, it says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated. The, the earth was full of light, no more darkness. The earth was filled with his glory. This will happen and this will take place. Do not downplay your intellect, your wealth, where you live, your situation, your education. None of that matters. Just like a mustard seed. You may consider yourself small in the grand scheme of things. And when we look at the whole earth, yes, we're just one individual. But oh boy, oh boy, you, one individual, can be mighty before the sight of God and man. It begins small, but the growth no one can contain it. Let us go ahead and pray. Father God, 
This idea of the mustard seed is one that even the parable is small. It's just two verses. One verse introduces it, and two of them really just tell the whole story. And sometimes we overlook it. But what a powerful message. Lord, you know that we, without you, we're just dirt. Simple dirt. We were told in the scriptures that you molded Adam from the dirt. You breathed into his nostrils, and he became a living soul, a living being. And Father God, that is wonderful because when we recognize that we're nothing without you, the more dependent we become of you and the greater works you can do in us and through us for the benefit of all. Father God, whatever our fears, whatever our doubts, whatever thing it is that is keeping us from helping advance your kingdom, whatever it is that is keeping us from sharing the good news with everybody, send your Holy Spirit to not give us any peace until we heed your call, until we accept your calling, and when we hear the voice, who will go before us? Who will go out there and tell the rest of the world to come out because they will be called by my name? That we can all say, Lord, here we are. Call us. We will go before you. We will go before them. We will go with you and not alone, and we will grow mighty in your sight, not because of the power, not because of the wealth, but because you have done great wonders in our lives and through our lives for the benefit of all lives. Lord, we look forward to the day of your appearing when the whole world is illuminated with your glory. But between now and then, between now and then, help us grow. Help us grow just like the mustard seed. This is my prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let everyone here say, Amen.